0: Okay, last week I taught in part the Sermon on the Mount by way of the doctrine of the Kingdom of God. And before returning to where we left off last week, which will be on page 3, I think at, a point, at point 13.2, let's use First John 1.9 as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study your Word as we recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, these verses no doubt have confused many people and certainly it confused the apostles. This is uh uh, we see today. We have much confusion over the synoptic Gospels and certainly what we call the doctrine of of the Kingdom, which we see on our board here. And uh have a dispensation chart that shows it as not quite... uh, Church age, uh, and it's not quite the age of Israel, so it's kind of an interim, but both connects the church and Israel, as well as intercalates or, in, or separates. Alright, now let's go ahead uh, and look at the doctrine of the kingdom, and you remember I've read you several times what Lewis Perry Schaeffer said about it, that it... Uh, is doubtless the greatest era into which many devout Bible interpreters fall. So here we go, by way of review, picking up with new material on page two, uh, page, uh, actually, actually page three at point thirteen point two, which actually begins on page two. So with that said, let's do our review very quickly. Christ's argument in Matthew 12, 28 seems to be that His expulsion of demons is proof enough of His offering the Messianic kingdom to Israel. This act was one of numerous evidences provided by the Lord that the kingdom of God had come. Christ announced His kingdom policy in three major speeches the Olivet Discourse, the Upper Room, and the Sermon on the Mount. So last week we talked, at least in part, Sermon on the Mount. So the Scripture says that He came unto His own Israel, that His own received Him not, but as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even, again, to them who believe on His name. Alright, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 further illustrates the need for careful interpretation. This sermon was addressed primarily to Israel. Jesus was speaking to the large crowd gathered around him on the mountainside. Matthew 4:24 through chapter 7 verse 28, quite a lengthy sermon. His ministry to Israel was underway because he had not been rejected yet by his people. And of course, there were certainly Gentiles present, says Matthew four twenty-four through 25 But it was done primarily for Israel as we have noted. So as in the Old Testament, Gentiles were blessed through Israel and definitely had access to the kingdom of God, though it was promised to Israel. And certainly this included past, present, and future. The presence of Gentiles does not change the fact that Christ was primarily addressing Israel. The hearers realize that all the Beatitudes in the opening lines of the sermon had not yet been accomplished, even though the Messiah had arrived, says Matthew 5, 3-11. Little did the crowds attending our Lord realize that Christ would be rejected, and that the complete fulfillment of His words would not occur during His first advent or in the yet undisclosed church age. Well, in fact, now the meek have not yet even inherited the earth, nor is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, though it will happen, of course, at the second advent. Matthew 6, 9-13 through 13. Christ was speaking directly in the Sermon on the Mount to his current audience, the generation of the age of the hypostatic union, which of course is from hupostasis, Christ standing down. Hupo under, stasis means to stand down. So it's a rather descriptive term in the Greek. Why? Right, because the church had not been announced and did not yet exist when Christ spoke On the mountainside, no part of our Lord's sermon is addressed specifically, in fact, to the church. That is to say, the Sermon on the Mount is not addressed. The correct conclusion is that the Sermon on the Mount belongs to the dispensation of the hypostatic union and certainly to the millennium when Christ will return and implement His new covenant, which will be unconditional. It will just happen. Why? Because he said it would. Alright, but not, of course, to the church age. Alright, Matthew is recording an offering of a kingdom to Israel. In Matthew 21.43, he foretells of Israel's rejection of that offering, resulting in its being offered to the nations in the church age, or of the church age. Though not directly pertinent to our study, I think it is appropriate to comment with reference to the two terms, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Matthew is the only writer of the New Testament to use the term kingdom of heaven, but he did use it quite often. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven as used by Matthew is often used synonymously with the term kingdom of God. For example, and now of course we, we uh, are approaching new material, but I'm gradually starting to add Scripture that we covered last week. Like Matthew 3, one. in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, okay, let's uh, uh, take a look at verse 4. Seventeen in Matthew four. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." In other words, I'm here and I'm offering. It. And then Matthew five three. Here's one of the requirements: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five nineteen and twenty. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so to do, of course, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Alright, now we've completed our review. So let's start new material. Continuing again in the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Excuse me, Matthew seven twenty one and 22. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven... Many will say to me, in that day, of course that's the Lord's day, when Jesus comes and implements His kingdom, and in fact we will be watching carefully and be changed ourselves so that we can in fact start doing the things found in the Lord's mountainside sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. But it takes a miracle, and uh, uh, we look forward to that day. So not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many of them will come to him and say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name hath cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And of course he will say, depart from me, I know you not. Because you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and there will be many people, because we're studying the doctrine of the false communicators in our 11 o'clock hour, and there will be many people. Might surprise us, you know, uh, that, uh, what are you doing here? And then some may even look at us and say, hey, what you doing here? (laughs) Alright, let's go. Matthew 8, 10, 11, 12, and 13 on page 3. When Jesus heard the statement by the centurion, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And of course that's the one where the centurion himself said, you don't have to come to my house to do the healing. Just say the words and it'll be, it'll happen. I have men that work for me to do that. And certainly you have people that, you know, things that you can do because you just say it and then it happens. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into utter darkness. But the children of the kingdom, there will be those, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. So sometimes uh, what the Lord says is... uh, not necessarily understandable without, of course, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Notice Matthew 10.7, And as ye go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, that's why he did miracles and other things so that people would understand it is here. Accept me. Accept my platform. And uh, we will implement that kingdom. But of course, there wasn't enough that did it. And I don't know how. what is enough. I don't know. Nobody knows. But there certainly wasn't enough. So they didn't get their kingdom. Instead, we have the interim kingdoms, the church age and the tribulation. And then in the millennium, He will implement that wonderful kingdom of His. Alright, Matthew eleven, eleven, 11, and 12. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist, or better said, John the Baptizer. <laughs> I grin every time I see that because when I got to summer camp when I was in the, uh, uh, officer training, I went up to the desk and uh, the guy asked me, he said, "What is your religion?" You know, and I said, "I'm a Baptist," and he said. And he said, well, let's see. How do you say that? I said, B-A-B-T-I-S-T. And then there was a captain over there. He said, you don't even know how to spell it, Mr. <laughs> Baptist. I really hit the... I impressed him, boy, I'll tell you. So notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All right, and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Okay, let's go to point 15 now. Matthew, again, prolific writer about the kingdom, by the way, as we've already noted. In Matthew 13, parables, uses the kingdom of heaven as a description of that which is to come in the church age. That is to say, because Israel rejected the earthly kingdom, something new and different, which is not at hand, was foretold. And I was telling Tommy, I think I'm going to, after we finish Second Timothy, since we're about to conclude it, I think I'm going to teach the Matthew 13 parables again. So here's a little preview. Matthew 13, 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Matthew 13:31. Reading again through verse 48 on page 3. And then we'll... Drop right down to 52. Alright, uh, another, uh, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spoke he unto them: The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And then we drop to forty-four. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in, the, in a field, that which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man. Saying, seeking goodly pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Then the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. Then verse 52, Then said he unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed in unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So we'll get to the Matthew 13 parable and teach it. I don't want to get into it in any way and spoil my thunder, so to speak. But I will tell you one little story I do remember. When Texas a and played Texas, the first year Bear Bryant was there, and I think they lost every game that year. In fact, I know they did every game until they played the University of Texas in the last game of, of the season. And uh, yeah, you remember that's when he didn't even have enough to, to... He ran so many off that he didn't have enough to even uh, scrimmage. And the story goes that... Uh, And before they came on the field, he got in his hand mustard seed and told them this parable. And everybody as they left the field to go out to play the University of Texas, having lost every game that year, he opened his hand and they all got a mustard seed and went out. If you have the faith of a mustard seed man, you can go out there and kick their butt. you know. And of course they did go out there and kick their butt. And uh, they won that game last game of the season. So it just shows you how perfect perfect the kingdom of heaven scriptures are, but uh, uh it was an interesting story and and uh, told over and over again by coaches. It's like the one more story. It's like <laughs> it's like when Baylor played Georgia, when Grant Taft came there when Baylor won the Southwest Conference. Uh, two years in a row, but uh <clears throat> they played Georgia, and of course, this was a new team that he had, and he was a new coach. So when they came on the field, everybody in Georgia was chanting, Dog me, dog me, dog me, you know. And he said he noticed his boys were kind of shook up, you know, so took them into the dressing room, and he said, Now, boys, come on back in the dressing room. Let's start this thing over. Uh, I want you, when we go out there, I want you to find the guy uh, that has your number, and I, I want you to go out there, and I want you to stand in front of him and look into the, look him in the eye and said, "I'm going to kick your butt," you know. And uh, he said, "And then just look at him." He said, "You think he's bigger than you? You think he's worse than?" Of course, Baylor beat Georgia that year, one of the few games they won when Red Calf was coached. But anyway, enough of that. Let's go on to Matthew 16, 18, and 19. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Alright, now let's look at this a little bit about Matthew 16, 18. It is a praise on the part of Jesus to Peter, the little rock. petros in the Greek. Then our Lord says upon the big rock, Petra, and that's the statement of faith about Jesus' true identity. That statement of faith, that's what I'll build my church on. So Matthew sixteen nineteen is a future reference to Peter being assigned as a leader of the early church. That was his job. A role which, unfortunately, he relinquished, even though he was selected by the Lord. And of course, he will regather himself and we will see him right first in second Peter. But he did go through a period where we heard nothing from him. And he was rebuked by Paul at one time. And and uh, it happens, you know. It happens. We all go through periods of time where we are either really positive or we lose our positivity. Alright, I want to stop here and review for a moment. This will set the stage for other uses of the term kingdom in the book of Acts and in the church epistles. Many Christians believe the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God have one meaning. Such is not the case. In this lesson alone, we have used kingdom of God nine times and kingdom of heaven thirty times. Notice how it is used in Matthew twenty-one forty-three of Christ, the rock, and the rock that crushes unproductive Israel and how the kingdom of God is then taken away. Matthew 21, 42, 43, and 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the top stone after the building finished. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Interesting verse. Alright, the term, our terms are often used eschatologically, events to happen in the future after, of course, the rapture of the church, and used to describe Christ's millennial kingdom both before and after unbelieving progenies are born. You know, we have the tribulation, then we have only believers entering the millennium, and then we have progenies born, some of which may not believe or will not believe, we know as a fact. Then there will be others who, of course, will believe. But uh, when they get out of line and they begin to in some way hurt, get in the way of perfect environment, then Christ implements capital punishment and takes them out. Because nothing will affect adversely perfect environment in Christ's kingdom. Alright, when in Acts 14.22 Paul writes, We must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Paul has in mind, in the case of church-age believers, their collective trials up to the rapture of the church, of course, the rapture or their deaths, whichever occurs first. So the term kingdom of God and or kingdom of heaven may also refer to the life of the believer on earth while he or she is consistently growing spiritually. But in contrast, for those who are not consistently growing spiritually, You're not part of the kingdom of God when you are doing drugs, hating one another, engaging in homosexuality, adultery, fornication, lying, cheating, etc. You are still saved, although excluded, from the kingdom. And this is usually where discipline takes place. Hebrews 12.6 For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. Now then, so much the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see what we can learn from John 4, 8 through 19. <clears throat> For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat, food. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me? Which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This is a Phoenician woman Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, give me to drink. Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. I remember, this is a, this is a hated Samaritan. But he's speaking with her. This is served his disciples, by the way. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of. Never, excuse me. A well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not. Neither thirst not. Neither come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, her uh oh, he's going to start meddling here now. Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. Alright, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. (laughs) Alright, the best way to teach these verses is to review the doctrine of marriage. Uh, It's been a long time since we did that. Now in Psalm 45, Christ is Himself foreseen in all His majesty and beauty along with His queenly bride, the church, to represent the purity which God desires of His children. The bride is greatly to be desired because of her beauty. Verse 11 of Psalm 45. That's beauty both outwardly and inwardly. Listen to the psalm. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. Her raiment is fine and beautiful, down to the smallest detail. Psalm forty-five, thirteen and 14. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Alright, now we're going to look at monogamy. And remember, this is something that needs to be taught in the local churches. We wonder why we have so many problems in this marriage uh, subject. And yet, we seldom hear it taught. Uh, But it needs to be taught from time to time to our young people. Alright, while polygamy was practiced for some time in the Old Testament... It was only permitted as a temporary measure. It denied the principle of husband and wife being one flesh and led to many marital problems. Genesis 2.24 Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So only in monogamy is it possible to escape family jealousies and to correctly illustrate the relationship of Christ to the believer. So saith Ephesians 5:22 through 33, and I shall read. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Alright, uh, we have that, of course, in most of our wedding ceremonies. And uh, sometimes they two believe it and sometimes they just fake it. But uh, <laughs> I told you the story about the time that I had two of them together and After I went all this over and I said, Now you remember, I'm going to ask you to to submit to your husband, you know, and he'll be your authority. Is that all right? Because I'm not going to change it. I don't change my my service. And she said, Yes, that'll be all right. And then she turned to her husband and get him that way with her elbow, you know, and said, You know what it means, all right? You know what we mean, you know. And, uh, I just thought, well there we go. there it goes, you know, it started. So let's review the doctrine of polygamy. Introduction. The teaching of the epistles is clear that a pastor teacher must be the husband of only one woman. 1 Timothy three two. Notice now the overseer, the bishop, the policymaker, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now the epistles also make clear, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. 1 Timothy 3.12 A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. So every believer is ordered, 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 ordered. To love his wife as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Alright, the New Testament therefore obviously prohibits multiple wives. And we'll look at the history of polygamy. And of course there are many other qualifications of the deacon and the pastor and all of them are beyond really uh, capability of humanity to perform. But they are there for our guidance and our directions. The husbands, for example, should be older. I mean, excuse me, pastors should be older people. People who have had experiences. People who have had families. People who have demonstrated they can prove our households correctly. And, then, and so forth and so forth. But we all fail uh, in, in, from time to time. But uh, that's the standard. It's kind of like, uh, here's what you ought to be. Now work to get there. Alright, uh, the New Testament therefore obviously prohibits multiple wives. Now here we go. History of polygamy. Polygamy was never authorized in the Bible, but rather seemed to be tolerated as opposed to being sanctioned. The tolerance was found only in the Old Testament. The wife of a man's use was rather a prize to be forever appreciated, said the Scripture. Daniel seventeen seventeen. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Alright, Psalm 128, 3 and 4. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. Proverbs 5, 18, reading through verse 20. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? All right, Proverbs 31, 10, and 11. A wife of noble character. Who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Proverbs 31, reading in verse 10, reading through the end of the chapter, is a wonderful description of the perfect wife. Uh, And, uh, of course, it's probably good from time to time to review that. And you will see that it might surprise you, the things it says. Alright, now let's go to Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Written by a man who eschewed the things in the Scripture about wives and polygamy, etc. And the prohibitions thereof. Alright, now let's go to the New Testament. The New Testament establishes the sanctity of marriage. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure for God that loves, um, excuse me, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. Polygamy is related to reversionism and is an overt expression of a negative mental attitude. The anecdote of Lamech introduces us to the subject. Polygamy was pervasive in the line of Lamech, a notorious reversionist. Lamech, son of Methuselah, was our first recorded polygamist. He married Ada and Zillah. He was said to be the father of nomads, musicians, and metalsmiths. Alright, I'm going to read Genesis 4.19-23. Lamech married two women, one named Ada. At one time I was assigned to Ada, Oklahoma, and they got their name, except they dropped the H in the old Center State League. So Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal or Yaval. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and flute. And Zillah, she also bare tubal cane, an instruction of every artisan in brass and iron. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, <laughs> hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. So he was an old braggart also, wasn't he? As well as uh, several other things as you can see listed there. Alright, polygamy violates the concept of right man and right woman. We have a doctrine, of course, of right man right woman. By acts of volition and refusal to conform to God's protocol plan... A man can destroy his right woman. You can either accept the woman God has provided or reject God's wisdom. Man is not designed for an intimate relationship with more than one woman. Man is not psychologically capable of more than a one-woman relationship. In fact, man is said to be incomplete when he is not with his right woman. In other words, he has not met her and married her. And I mean married, not shacking up. Alright, polygamy is a form of self-induced misery for both the man and the woman. Elkanah's polygamy contributed to Hannah's trouble. You remember poor Hannah. Hannah was one of the two wives of Elkanah, a Levite of the line of Kohath, one of the Kohane's, who lived in Mount Ephraim. But because Hannah was barren, Elkanah had... She, he, she had married Peninnah, a second wife who bore him children. So here we go. you are a little having a problem between the two. Hannah was a woman of prayer and faith as well as a woman of strong desires. She begged God for a son and promised that if God provided, she would give him back to the Lord. This she did when Samuel was born. Jealousy between Hannah and Peninnah resulted in Hannah's trauma. First 1 Samuel 1-6. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Gideon's end story. You remember the story. She did give him Samuel away and you know who Samuel was. He was a great prophet of God. Alright, Gideon's polygamy caused trouble among his children. Oh, Gideon had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine who lived in Shechem. She bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Abimelech hired vain and evil persons who followed him. They slew his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon, the men of Shechem, and made Abimelech king. After Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So I kind of cut that one up a little bit so we could read it quickly. And uh, you could see the point being Gideon's polygamy caused trouble among his children. Alright, the Lord disciplined Abimelech. He was a child of polygamy because he dispossessed a rightful heir. Gideon's act of polygamy resulted in a problem for Gideon and his posterity. So let's look at other problems, anecdotal evidence of things associated evil things, with polygamy. David's polygamy compounded his problem with his children. For additional specifics, see the doctrine of David, parts two and three. That is a quite a lengthy uh, doctrine. And as uh, I noticed that David counted up our study books, we have over 500 now on the uh, internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. All right, and one of them has to be, happens to be the Doctrine of David, uh, which is about that thick, going through the life of David, starting at the beginning and ending at his, his death. All right, the result of Solomon's failure to heed God's warning concerning polygamy is recorded in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 11.1 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. All right, let's read. 11.2, reading through verse 8. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart, after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their God. All right, uh, so much for violating the laws that God provides uh, without repentance and change of mind or change of heart. Now we are ready to consider the subject of divorce. Divorce. Divorce has always presented a serious problem. It is important that pastor teachers teach what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. In the earliest teachings of the Bible, man and woman were to marry and stay together, refraining from sexual relations with any other. Anything other than monogamy was forbidden. But mankind, being what mankind was and is, has found staying married a difficult task. Given mankind's wayward nature, God authorized divorce. Alright, I remember Billy Graham in a sermon one time said only God can unscramble scrambled eggs. But uh, it happens. Alright, men began to have multiple wives and concubines. Women were often divorced and family problems prevailed. Even kings were not spared. Incest, rape, murder, family rebellion, etc., And all because they didn't heed God's call for monogamy. So the New and the Old Testaments are replete with accounts of misadventures in marriage. Christ, for example, in his kingdom teachings, explained that God permitted divorce only because of the hardness of man's heart. And he further added that the only grounds for divorce was adultery. Our Lord then expanded His teaching about adultery and fornication by saying, If a man lusted in his heart for a woman, he was guilty. This sin complicated everything. For again, what healthy red-blooded male could avoid adultery and or fornication by that definition? Fortunately, the epistles urged mankind to attack all sins in the privacy of the mind. How? 1 John 1.9 The epistles, however, also stretched the heinous nature of sexual sins, because sexual sins affect both the body and the soul of the believer. All right, the body, said Paul, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it was blasphemous to think of the body being joined to a harlot, a not-so-kindly description of a sexual union between two people outside of marriage. So much for an introduction to the subject of divorce. It was only because of the hardness of men's hearts that Moses allowed a bill of divorcement. But such was not, says our Lord. That wasn't the original plan. And that says Matthew five thirty one through thirty two, nineteen eight through nine, Mark ten, two through nine, and Luke sixteen eighteen. An example Matthew five thirty one and thirty two. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, Jesus replied in Matthew 19, 18 and 19, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness And marry another woman commits adultery. And certainly, as we've seen, the standard has been, had been amplified by the Lord Jesus, far beyond that of physical adultery. Alright, Mark 10-2, various standards, impossible standards that the Lord has provided to us, and was amplified, of course, in both the Old and the New Testament and the eschatological Scriptures, so that we can, in fact, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Alright, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ... I recommend you do it right now because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So uh, you can do that right now. Remedy the situation. And how? By simply telling God the Father, I am believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word you will be saved. So I'll pause for just a moment and give you opportunity to do just that. And then I will close our service. Father, thank You for the privilege of living in the United States of America. And once again, we pray for our country. We pray for all the situations which seem to be stressing us all out in this country of ours. Help us, guide us, and direct us. And then I would certainly ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real in order that we might grow in Your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. In His name I pray. Amen.